Georgia. Yeah, you know what? We're, we're confusing everybody. We moved it to Thursday. From Tuesday to Saturday and now to Thursday. Sorry, if, George, if you like that move, it was my idea. If you don't like it, it was Jody's idea. Well, there you, well, your wish has been granted, so praise the Lord for that. Well, thank you guys for being here on Wednesday night. Uh, I, if you were in church on Sunday, I want to apologize to all of you. I, I did not mean to offend this crowd, but if you recall what I said, is that I get the group of people who have nothing better to do. And uh, I didn't mean it the way that it came across. I meant it that if you're not involved in choir, you're not leading children's ministry or working in student ministry, or you're not in orchestra, or you're not watching babies in the nursery, that you are welcome to come on Wednesday night. I did not mean that this is the, the room for the misfit toys or whatever. So we're glad that you're here uh, tonight. Um, I want to uh, just say in anticipation of some things that are coming to keep you up, up, up to date on where we're headed every week. As you know, we've been talking on Wednesday nights about 10 questions that every Christian should be able to answer. Um, and we also flip that around, and we could rephrase that by saying these are 10 questions that lots of lost people are asking. And so what we're doing week by week is addressing those questions. Now, we reserve the right, if we don't feel like we get through the material, uh, to take two weeks to do that. And based on some conversations that I have had, uh, some of you have said to me, I wish we would do that because I, I get about 5% of what you say uh, because you talk so quickly and go through the material. So here's the deal we have to make. I'm going to speak quickly, but you have to listen quickly. And if you listen quickly and I speak quickly, we'll be on the same page. Uh, but no, seriously, I want to, to help you, and I don't want to try to get through the material so quickly that you know, you're not able to comprehend the material. Uh, because our goal is to help you to adequately converse with a skeptic or a non-believer and to be able to answer the questions that many of them have or many of them are wrestling with or dealing with. So that's my goal. And if I can't help you to adequately answer those questions, then we're not getting accomplished what my hope is on, on Wednesday nights. Um, last week, we talked about the problem of evil, and we dealt with a little bit. It's, there's so much to it, but well, how we could maybe help somebody to work through the problem of evil. Uh, remember the little syllogism that we shared with you? The argument of the agnostic or the atheist is that if God is all-powerful and all-loving um, and evil exists then God is not all-powerful and all-loving because if he were, he could either put an end to it or he could keep it from happening in the first place. And uh, so we talked about that assumes that God would have no purpose in allowing evil to occur. And even though evil is difficult for us to wrap our arms around and in our finite understanding, we cannot possibly answer all the questions uh, about evil, we do believe that God has a purpose, and that purpose may not ever be known this side of heaven uh, or for uh, uh, our lifetime, but we believe that God has a purpose for everything that he does. And so you came last week, you listened to me for an hour, and I just gave you the summary. You didn't even have to come last week. All you had to do was hear that. So um, we try to put these online. I know it's difficult to listen to them online because along with what we're talking about on Wednesday nights, we have some presentations that we're uh, having to go along with those. So it kind of helps you visually to be able to see. Next Wednesday night, I want to encourage you to be here. Have you ever had the question asked of you, is evolution true? Uh, how does evolution and the subject of Christianity, how do they uh, coexist? Is it possible? Uh, 
Uh, did God create the world in seven days, six days, and rest on the seventh day? Or is this world the result of time plus energy plus chance? Uh, we're going to deal with that subject, but here's the thing. Uh, I'm not going to do it. Uh, John Moody, John, raise your hand. John is a member here at Hunter's Glen. You and Becky have been here two years, one year? Seems like two, right? For you, not for me. Uh, John is also a candidate for being a new deacon here at Hunter's Glen. Uh, John is a wonderful man who has seminary training, and he knows far more about that subject than I'm certain I do. So I have asked him to teach that next week, uh, and I want you to come and listen. And uh, I won't be here. I'll be in Peru with our mission team. We have about 10 people going to Peru. And our goal is to go to the church that you as a church a year ago, back actually last December, November, raised $50,000 to build a building for a, a church in a very poor community in the northwestern part of Peru called Pura. And we're going to go for the dedication of that building and to be able to video that building. Herson Molina is going. He has two purposes. One, he's going to do some incredible video of the children that many of you sponsor through Compassion International. We have several hundred children that our church sponsors, uh, but also to uh, not only to video them, but also to bring back pictures of the church and the pastor and, uh, and, and then Herson is also fluent in Spanish. So his job is to interpret, translate for me. And uh, so we're going to be bringing back some really cool footage to share and celebrate here at Hunter's Glen, what you all did. Not everybody can go, but we can celebrate that. So we'll be there next week, and I'll be back on Friday. It's a quick trip for me, um, and then be back here in, for, for Sunday. So I won't miss a Sunday, but John's going to be leading that. My desire... Uh, is to, uh, uh, to uh, come back and get his notes and then reprocess those and then uh, learn a lot through what John teaches. So anyway, appreciate you teaching, John. Grateful for that. So tonight, our subject is, is the Bible really God's word? And then I put parenthetically, and is it true? So we're going to try to answer the question, is the Bible God's word? As we walk through this presentation tonight, I want to tell you uh, there is a lot of material that you can find on the subject of is the Bible God's word. Uh, much of the material that you will find is based on the same arguments that we're going to be looking at tonight. Now, uh, the handout sheet that you have is in... Uh, uh, Sorry about the microphone. Is that messing everybody up? Am I doing something wrong here? Should, should I just ignore it? Rondon says just ignore it. But uh, so would it be better? Is, is that distracting? Is it just, if I do that, is it distracting? If I do this, does it bother y'all? Okay. <laughs> Somebody told me two Sundays ago, they said, Pastor, you have a wonderful, wonderful face for radio. So I, I don't know if I have a voice for radio with the microphone, but I may have a face for radio. At least you don't have to see it on radio. So if you're listening online, be thankful. But uh, so tonight, what I want to share with you as we walk through this together is a, a presentation that is uh, in, in large part indebted to uh, a man by the name of Dr. David Geisler, Dr. Norman Geisler, who is now with the Lord, who died uh, this last year. Uh, Dr. Norman Geisler is an apologist. His son obviously has learned much from his dad. Dr. Norman Geisler has written dozens and dozens and dozens of books. I have many of them in my library. Um, and his purpose in writing those books is to arm Christians with answers to questions that skeptics might ask. Now, the question is, why are we even taking the time to do this? And I want to read just a portion of Scripture to you from the book of Thessalonians. And, I, and then I want to make just a comment on it before we look at the presentation. Now, when they had passed through, first, uh, it's the, the book of Acts chapter 17. Uh, now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. 
And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women." You notice that when Paul arrived in the city of Thessalonica, his purpose was to evangelize the Thessalonians. And by evangelize, I mean to share the gospel with the Thessalonians. Whenever we hear the word evangelism, I think it conjures up in all of our minds different types of images. Maybe you have in your mind right now, when you think of evangelism, uh, the preacher who slams the pulpit and, and spits and snorts and, and says, turn or burn, repent or, uh, or, or, or die in your sins. A lot of us uh, picture that when we think of evangelism. Others of us, when we think of evangelism, think of going up to a door and you're petrified, you don't know the people behind the door, and you knock on that door and you have to open your mouth and force Jesus upon those people. I don't know if that's what you think of when you think of evangelism. Somebody might think that evangelism is something that the pastor is called to do or the staff is called to do, or it's a gift that is only given to some people. The Bible talks about the gift of evangelism. So all of us have different ideas in our mind about evangelism, but we get a really good picture of evangelism when we look at the Apostle Paul in Thessalonica. And you'll notice that when he went to Thessalonica, he went to the synagogue, and he reasoned with the Jews for three Sabbath days or for three weeks. Uh, Paul's approach in Thessalonica was to find people who were uh, where he could find common ground and to begin to converse with them and to begin to develop relationships with them so that he might understand them, where they were, what they were going through, what their objections or questions might be, and then he was, by finding that common ground and understanding where they were, his goal was to dialogue with them, reason with them, or converse with them for the purpose of confronting them or sharing with them the claims of Christ in hopes that they would respond to that message. Now, that's evangelism. Repeat that back to me. That's evangelism. Evangelism is helping people to overcome the obstacles of their faith so that by conversing with them or sharing with them, they might overcome those obstacles through that common ground that you find and ultimately walk across that bridge to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes that happens in a pulpit by a, a, a God-called evangelist. Sometimes it happens when you knock on a door and you visit with somebody who is a stranger. Uh, sometimes that happens when you're sitting down at the kitchen table and you're speaking with your kids. Sometimes it happens when you're at the office on a lunch break or when you're riding on the bus or the train going downtown to work. Uh, evangelism happens in the course of our lives and it happens in a variety of ways and in a variety of different contexts. And so what our goal is, is to help you in the course of those contexts and in the course of those conversations, gospel conversations, as we like to say, that you will be able to have some understanding of questions, real questions, that real people in the world are asking. And that by understanding how to answer those questions, you'll feel a little more confident and be a little more uh, able to share the gospel with people. I think one of our biggest fears is that we don't feel like we know how to share the gospel and we're afraid that somebody's going to ask a question that we don't know the answer to. Has that ever happened? Every Wednesday night when I ask you to ask questions, I'm afraid you're going to ask a question that I don't know the answer to and I'm so thankful I've got trained theologians in here I can defer to, but when you're by yourself, you don't have that, and you're afraid that you'll be inadequate, or you're afraid that you'll be embarrassed, or you'll afraid, you're afraid that you'll ask the, uh, answer the wrong question in the wrong way. And so Paul went in, 
and he reasoned with them from the scriptures, and he explained and proved it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to be raised from the dead. In other words, he dialogued, he reasoned, he illustrated, he conversed. All those things were happening. So that's what happens with all of us. We all have conversations with non-believers. It might be our kids, it might be our spouse, it might be our friends, it might be our neighbor. But the more that you understand, the more that you'll be able to share the gospel. And so that's what we're trying to do. So I want to walk through um, this, uh, this presentation a little bit. I want to give you a couple quotes. Thomas Paine, very well-known uh, atheist skeptic, uh, said uh, in the Age of Reason, there is no history written at the time of Jesus Christ uh, at the time Jesus Christ is said to have lived that speaks of the existence of a person even as a man. Now, that's an example of radical disbelief. That's somebody who is not even willing to consider any evidence or even look at any facts or, or even entertain any thoughts. And so you get a comment that uh, there's no written record whatsoever uh, that Christ existed or that, uh, that he even walked on the face of the earth. And you'll find in our culture, even today, radical skeptics. Probably not as many as you think you'll find, but you'll find radical skeptics. Most of the people that you'll encounter are not there, and we'll see in a moment. Uh, you'll notice Bertrand Russell in his book, Why I Am Not a Christian, uh, is what we call a moderate skeptic. He wrote, historically, it is quite doubtful whether Christ ever existed at all, and if he did, we do not know anything about him. You see the little bit of the difference there? You have the one that says, we don't believe Christ existed at all, but then you say it's doubtful. What's the difference? On one hand, you have an atheist, and on the other hand, you have an agnostic. Okay? An agnostic is a person that says, I don't have enough information. There's a very big difference there. And I've shared with you before, this is an incredible way to do this. Uh, so if you've already heard it, just you know, ignore it. Uh, what I have found is uh, sometimes I say things a hundred times and you act like it's the first time I ever said it. But anyway, uh, if, you take, if you take an atheist, or excuse me, an agnostic, and you hold up a piece of paper, or in this case would be my Bible, and you say, I want to ask you a question. This, uh, this page right here, this, this cover on this Bible, represents, if this represents all the knowledge in the world, okay, all the knowledge that ever existed, ever will exist, uh, all the knowledge that, that's out there, okay? If this Bible represents that, this, this cover, uh, what portion of this do you think, uh, of all the knowledge that ever existed, you personally have? What, what, what portion of this? And any honest person is going to say, well, maybe this little writing up here, you know, in the corner. Uh, I would probably say a little dot, you know. I think I have that much of all the knowledge that ever existed. Some people may have more. So then you could respond to that person by saying, so you're saying you don't have all the knowledge that ever has existed in the course of human history and ever will exist. No, of course not. Okay, so maybe there is some information that you've already admitted that you do not have that could help you to come to the conclusion that the Bible's true, that Jesus is who he says he is, that there is a God. Maybe that information exists that you don't have knowledge of yet, but you're saying you don't have all the information, you only have a little bit. Would you concede that maybe in all of this that you don't have, there's some information out there that could be convincing enough for you to demonstrate that what I'm saying to you about the gospel is true? Now, if that person is honest, they will have to say to you what? Well, I suppose. Unlikely, but I suppose. So then you say to them, well, fantastic. We have just concluded that you are not an atheist. You are an agnostic. And you are an agnostic because you don't believe there's enough knowledge that will help you to make a definitive conclusion. So your problem isn't necessarily that there is no God. Your problem is that you don't know if there's enough information that a God exists. So let me try to help you by giving you some things to consider that will help you uh, to work through your unbelief or through your doubt. Now, that doesn't necessarily put an exclamation point on the conversation, but what that does do is it opens the door for you to begin to have a conversation with them, and we'll see some examples in a moment of those conversations, but you'll be able to have a conversation with them where you can begin to address in a rational way, in a coherent way, in a cogent way, some of their doubts. And why are you doing that? Not because you can reason anybody into the kingdom of heaven. 
You cannot reason. Has anybody tried to do that? Some of us have talked to our parents or our, our kids or we've talked to people. We try to reason with them. You're not going to reason somebody's heart to salvation. But what you can do is you can soften their heart uh, or you can, excuse me, uh, touch their heart so that the Spirit of God softens their heart or works on their heart to lead them, uh, to, to bring them to salvation. So that's why we're doing what we're doing. I'm not sitting here saying all the information we're going to give you and all the stuff we're talking about is going to enable you to have every answer for every non-believer, but it will help you to have some information uh, to, to be able to kind of begin to take them across a bridge. Now, here is a picture of, uh, of, of Geisler's conversational evangelism. And I want you to look at this because there are four types of conversations we want to have with non-believers. Okay, so if you look in the middle at the conversation, if you look at the word here, boy, that screen's bright when you walk up there. I can't see. Uh, but when you look at the word here, by the way, this is something cool, totally unrelated. I'm very random. I'm ADD. You have already know that. You know that screen is only at about 40% brightness. Uh, we were meeting with a screen company when we put the screens in the worship center, and the guy said, these are only at like 40 or 35% brightness. If we put them up to 100, it would blind everybody in your congregation. I don't know why I just said that. But anyway, it's super bright. Guys, if you're a guy, you think that's cool. You probably bought a TV that you paid way too much money for because the salesperson said, oh, listen, that's the brightest anyway. So we want to have four conversations with people. The first conversation is, we, we want to hear, okay? We want to hear. What does the Bible say in James chapter 1, verse 19? Let everyone be quick to hear or swift to hear, slow to speak and slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God, right? So we want to be swift to hear. Well, we want to be listeners. When we do evangelism, what is typic the typical approach that a lot of us make? You sit and listen to everything I have to say. Well, skeptics aren't in agreement with everything you have to say. So you might be sharing with the, them the gospel, but they're not even buying theologically the truths that you're sharing. You're missing one another. So you want to be able to listen to what people say. So it means, and we'll come to this, it means asking questions. But you want to hear. You want to listen. Have you ever just asked a non-believer or somebody that does not know Christ, tell me what it is that is your hang-up? Uh, what is it that you really believe? Why do you say what you say? And I'm talking about not in a, in a condemning way or in a pharisaical way. I mean in a very inquisitive way. Hey, tell me what it is that catches you and you're unwilling to uh, take the step toward, toward Christ. So you need to listen to what they have to say. Uh, for example, if somebody says to you, all religions are true, I believe that every religion is true. Well, maybe as you're listening to them about that, you'll ask a couple of questions. We'll come to that in just a moment. But you're making note of those things. I believe there are multiple pathways to God. Uh, Jesus may be a good man, but Jesus is not who you say that he is. The resurrection is a myth. Whatever it is, you're just listening to what people say. You know what I have learned? I have learned that people love to talk. They really do. And especially about themselves. If you want to get somebody talking, ask them to tell them or tell you about themselves and really be interested in listening. Now, is, have you ever been in a conversation where you, somebody asks you a question about yourself and then you start dumping your heart out and pouring your heart out and they're looking past you for the next person in the room? Or they're acting like they're not even listening, you, you know, they're not even paying attention. Do you want to share with anybody like that? Not at all. But if you ever start talking with somebody and they start looking at you in the eye and, and, and speaking with you and conversing with you and talking with you, um, uh, with them, you know, you're having that interaction, they, they'll talk. They really will talk. 
So remember, evangelism is all about listening, hearing what they're saying, okay? That's right at the, the center. You want to listen to the uncertainty of where they are. Now, notice the second part of this, besides listening, is you go to the top, it's illuminating. And by illuminating, you are asking questions because you want to highlight or to see where their questions are about the faith. What do you mean by this? And a, and a really important way to do this with evangelism is to clarify the terminology. In fact, I learned in, in debate class and I learned in, um, in any debate that you have with somebody, one of the first things you must do is to agree to the terminology. Because a lot of times if you get into a debate with somebody over some subject and you're not talking about the same terms you're not having a real debate. You're, you're missing each other. We, we, by the way, do this a lot in church when we say words like, um, we say words, uh, uh, big, big words like uh, uh, hedge of protection. You know, Christians love to say that. Or we say words like, uh, we're going to have at the conclusion of the service an invitation. Or we say, you need to, you need to accept Jesus. Okay, do you think non-believers, we could go on and on, but do you think non-believers understand the same things you're talking about? They have no idea what you're talking about. I shared with a girl one day, and I was telling her she needed to accept Jesus, and she looked at me, and she said, we are totally, you're missing it. She goes, I do accept Jesus. I don't deny his existence. I accept him. Well, that's not what I was talking about. I was talking about make a commitment to him. Turn from your sin. Turn to him. You know, trust him. And so we were missing one another. So ask people to define what they mean. So is that not bothering y'all? It's crazy. It's just, it must be a noise in my own head, uh, which happens regularly. But so ask questions. What do you mean by this? Uh, here's another question. Somebody will say, you know, I just believe all pathways lead to heaven. And, uh, and uh, I, I believe that, that, that everybody is ultimately good. And, 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 and to, to, to say that anybody is wrong uh, is, 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 to be, is to be condemning and it is to be judgmental. And so you might ask them, well, do you think that Hitler uh, is in the heaven that you're speaking of? And they, and they might say, well, what, what, what do you mean? Uh, he was a bad man. Uh, he, he did horrible atrocities. And then you could say, well, do you have any, what is your basis to determine the atrocities that he did? Do you have any standard by which you measure those atrocities? Well, yeah, so what he did was wrong. But you have just said that truth is, how could truth be relative and yet what he did is wrong? You know, what you're trying to do is not say, I got you, because that's what we want to do. That's what every Christian wants to do. I got you. No, what you want to do is you want to converse with them to illuminate in their own mind maybe the irrationality or the uncertainty of their own belief system. Because if they become uncertain of their own belief system, then what are they going to do? They're going to be open to what you're saying to them. And you're not trying to talk them into heaven. Somebody talks a person into heaven, somebody can talk a person out of heaven. So you're trying to at least help them to see the validity of what you're saying. What do you mean by, tell me this. You know, if you have kids and they're little or when your kids were little, did they ask a thousand questions? We had one uh, that just accepted everything about life. We had another one that asked endless questions. She wore us out. Why is the sky blue? Why is the dirt brown? Why do dogs run? Why do they sleep? You know, I mean, it's just an endless question. Why are roads paved? Why are there lines on the road? Why are there signs? Why is this sign here? Why isn't that sign here? Why do cars have tires? I mean, it was just nonstop. And finally, Carmen would get so weary of all those questions, she would look at her and she would say, when I was your age, I didn't care about all that stuff. And she would say, well, I'm not you, Mom. I'm me. But ask questions, ask questions, so you illuminate. Number, number three, uncover. What you're trying to do, and see why you're doing this, you're hearing, right? It's just a circle. 
And then number, number three, uncover. What do you want to uncover? You want to uncover what their real hang-up is. The real hang-up. The real unbelief. Because, you see, do you know that there is a given reason why people do things and a real reason why people do things? And the two are not the same. Somebody may give you a reason, and it's not the real reason. They may say to you, you know, I'm not coming to church because... Uh, you people at that church are a bunch of hypocrites. Well, that may be the given reason. The real reason is they may be convicted and they don't want to be around all that, but they're trying to get you off their back. And so they're going to throw out a given reason, but it's not the real reason. And just as a note, I have learned this too. When somebody is ugly or mean to you or says something to you that's hurtful, um, you always have to realize, always have to try to understand that with people, uh, what they're saying uh, may come out in a certain way, but there might be something beneath the surface that you don't know about. That's not excusing them saying that. I'm just saying there's always what you see or what you hear, and then there's always what's really going on beneath the surface. Does that make sense? You know what I'm talking about? Because some days you have a really bad day, and you may snap and bite somebody's head off, but it really has nothing to do with the person that you, know, you bit their head off. It may be that you've just had some really tough stuff going on in your life. So the real response wasn't really the response. It was something that was underneath the surface or beneath the surface. So when we talk with people about the gospel, we want to try to ask here, ask questions, because we're trying to get to the root at the heart of what they don't believe. Because otherwise, you're going to be dealing with subjects that aren't even relevant to the whole conversation with them. And then lastly... We want to build, or we want to build bridges. And so we want to build bridges to the gospel because that's the ultimate goal. Now, a lot of us, we want to start right here. We want to start by building the bridges. We want to start by doing that. But we're not always at that place. First of all, we have to hear where they're coming from. Secondly, we have to ask questions to understand where they are and what their terminology is and what they understand and what they don't. Then we want to uncover what they're really struggling with and what their real hangups are. And then lastly, what do we want to do? We want to build a bridge. How do you build a bridge to the gospel? You find common ground. So you find common ground. We've been doing this since January, but what is common ground? It's telling sometimes what? Your story. Yeah, I understand where you're coming from. And I was right there. Let me tell you a little bit about my journey. Let me tell you about what I was dealing with. And I, I, I don't have any question. I, I, I certainly understand where you're coming from. And you start to build the bridge because you have common ground. And you take a step and you take a step and you take a step and you try to help them come to this understanding that the truth that you're presenting to them is, is the truth. Now, remember, all along, you're not going to reason anybody to heaven unless the Spirit of God opens the eyes of those who do not believe. They will never know the gospel, for the, for the things of God are foolishness. The message of the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God, right? So God's got to open their eyes. That's what Paul was telling the Corinthians. He said, listen, unless God opens people's eyes, it's going to not make any sense to them. So we're trying to build bridges to see that common ground, to be able to get them to the gospel. So this is really, this is why we're doing this. And there's a lot more we can say, but we'll move on. So let's talk about the criticism that you find, you find a lot of times when it comes to uh, Christians. Here's what people say. You say you believe in the Bible because of Jesus. But then you say you believe in Jesus because of the Bible. Isn't this circular reasoning? Have you ever heard anybody say that? How do you know the Bible? Here's another way to look at it. How do you know the Bible is God's word? Because the Bible says it's God's word. So you're, you're, you're kind of reasoning in a circle. And a lot of times you'll hear this raised. You believe that uh, who Jesus is, he saved you, therefore you believe the Bible, but the only way you get to know about Jesus is through reading the Bible, and it's a big circle, and aren't you uh, reasoning in a circular way? Well, let me give you uh, Norm Geisler's response to this. And uh, it's, only, it's, it's like a theologian or a pastor to take something and make it really complex. So I want to walk you through this, but 
and if you had his uh, Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics, I know that's something you were thinking. I hope Pastor talks about that tonight. Uh, but he talks about this argument in, in that. I have a copy in my office if you want to see it. But here's the argument, and this is what we call syllogism. You know what a syllogism is? Syllogism is simply an argument that if you have, it's a premise and a premise and a premise or premises that are, that are stated, and then ultimately those premises lead to a conclusion. And if you want to poke a hole in a syllogism, if you can demonstrate that any one of the premises are wrong, the syllogism crumbles. Right? So when we talk about, you know, if God is loving and good and gracious, uh, then he can stop evil, but evil exists, therefore God is not loving and kind and good. Well, you, you, you have to deal with the, 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 the syllogism to be able to respond to the conclusion. So a, a syllogism is only as strong as its premises are. So l look at his argument here. Did, did what I just say make any sense? Did it just confuse you all? Let me just give you an example. If, here, here it is. Number one, if God exists, then miracles are possible. Would you argue that that's true? If. It's just an if. It's not assuming. It's just saying if. If God, whoever God is, all-knowing, all-powerful, great being, if God exists, and we're talking about the God of the Bible, but if he does exist, then he is supernatural. He can, he can do miracles. Number two, if the New Testament documents excuse me, the New Testament documents are historically reliable, okay? So we believe that the, the documents, and I'm just talking about the New Testament, what we read in the New Testament is reliable, it's trustworthy, it's history, it's not history-like, and it's not even likely history, it's history, okay? That, you get that? So the New Testament documents are historically reliable. Number three, in the New Testament, Jesus claimed to be God, we, we believe that, right? The reliable documents tell us that Jesus was God. I and the Father are what? One. If you have seen the Father, you have what? Seen me, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life, okay? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus was claimed to be God. Number four, Jesus proved to be God by an unprecedented convergence of miracles, uh, fulfilled prophecy, Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled in the New Testament about who Jesus was, what he came to do. Uh, more on that later. Number two or B, the miracle of the resurrection. So you talk about a miracle. Miracle is they put him in a grave and he was raised from the grave. Number five, therefore Jesus was God in human flesh. If all those are true, then that follows. Then you look at number six, what Jesus uh, teaches is true because if he is God then what Jesus is going to say is going to be true number seven Jesus taught that the Bible is the word of God Jesus told us over and over again that what he is saying is from the father there's not a jot nor a tittle any of these words shall pass away till all are fulfilled so Jesus continually affirmed that the, the Bible, what he was saying, was God's word. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to the disciples on the road to Emmaus all things concerning himself. We can go on and on. So Jesus declared that the Bible is the word of God. Therefore, the Bible is the word of God. Now, the reason I show you that, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on that, is it isn't circular reasoning. We're starting with a premise, if God exists, then miracles are possible. We walk through the various statements, truth statements about the New Testament, what Jesus said, assuming that all that is true, therefore the Bible is the word of God is true, okay? It's, it's not a circular argument, it's a, it's, a, it's a really solid argument. Now, you have to believe every premise if you're going to buy into the argument. Just because I share it with you doesn't say, ha-ha, you atheist, or ha-ha, you agnostic, I've got you. They're going to say, no, you don't got me. The New Testament documents aren't historically reliable. I don't believe that God exists. So they're not buying the premises, and therefore they're not going to get to the conclusion. But you want to demonstrate to them that the premises that you are listing out can be defended. And there's a, a reliable, rational way to defend those. Does that make sense? I think I have totally lost every one of you. So let's move on. And uh, talk about this question. Is the Bible reliable? So now we've got to come back and we've got to deal with a couple of uh, observations. 
And these are questions behind the question. Number one, how do you know the Bible has been accurately translated from the original? So we have to be able to deal with that. If the Bible is God's word and it is perfect, as we Christians claim, then the originals that were uh, given, uh, written rather, and inspired by the Holy Spirit uh, had to be perfect. How do we know that even if we assume the originals were perfect, nobody has the originals. Nobody has the original letter to the Corinthian church. Nobody has the original letter that was written by Luke when he wrote Acts. Nobody has any of the original letters. Do you have any of those, by the way, in your house? Right. Nobody has them. What do you have? You have copies. We hold in our hand copies of the original. So how do we know that it was, if, assuming that it's true, how do we know that they have been translated accurately? Number two, couldn't they have been, uh, could they have accurately recorded a bunch of lies? So how do we know the stuff that's being written wasn't written, even in the originals, by a bunch of people that were trying to fool people in human history and tell a lie? Now you would go, oh, it's not true. We, well, none of us believe that, preacher, right? If I sat up here and told you the Bible's a bunch of lies, I wouldn't be here very long, would I? You'd form a mob with pitchforks and chase me out of here. But there are people that would argue, well, how do we know that what's been, what's been written in our Bible isn't, Maybe some of it's true, but how do we know that it's all, and why, how do we know it's not uh, fabricated? And then number three, how do we know that the Bible is not just a myth that developed over time? So those are real questions. So to determine whether the Bible is reliable, you need maps. How many of y'all have heard me say this before? Great, because I have. But anyway, nobody has paid attention. So Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible answer man. Anybody listen to Hank Hanegraaff? Three or four of you. Uh, I used to listen to him as a new Christian. He was always on the radio, the Bible answer man. People would call in. They'd ask all these questions, and he'd answer them, and he's incredibly smart. Still does ministry. But Hank Hanegraaff came up with an acrostic called MAPS to help you argue that the reliability of the Bible. And it, it's real simple. Manuscripts, archaeology, prophecy, and statistical probability. Okay? That's MAPS. We're going to deal with a little bit tonight with manuscripts, but... Archaeology, if you've traveled with me to Israel, um, we go to these different sites and I bring up different articles and different archaeological finds that have been, uh, that have surfaced and some just recently in the last few years, very groundbreaking archaeological finds that uh, continue to shed light on the reliability of the Bible. By the way, I want to tell you that archaeology does not prove the reliability of the Bible. The Bible is reliable. Archaeology just confirms what we already know. So I tell people that. They, you know, if we could just find stuff, it'll prove. No, well, we believe the Bible's true. Archaeology just says, well, we already knew that, you know, but it just shows us that. And there's a lot of archaeology that continues to surface that really sheds light on the truthfulness of the Bible. Uh, sometime we'll talk about that. But so you have archaeology, you have prophecy, Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in the New Testament, and then you have statistical probability. What is the likelihood of so-and-so saying this? It's tied to prophecy, but what is the likelihood of so-and-so saying this or this happening and, and, and the statistical probabilities, but we, we won't get into that. So I want to take a little bit of time, and I want to talk about the documents of the New Testament as reliable and ask the question, do they... Uh, reliably record uh, the things that Jesus said and did, okay? So we want to talk about manuscript evidence, just for a second, and I'm going to try to make it simple. So y'all are like, oh, here he goes. But I want to try to make it simple. Manuscript evidence, and I want to show you three tests. You have bibliographical evidence, external evidence, and internal evidence. Bibliographical, we'll talk about that just at the beginning. Bibliographical would be dealing with the actual writings that have been found, the, the manuscripts that have been discovered. Um, secondly, external evidence, that would be people outside of the Bible, like historians, the church fathers, the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, uh, other writings that, that, that talk about the New Testament, some of the discoveries that happened with the Dead Sea Scrolls and some of the scrolls that were found. Um, and then lastly, internal evidence, the Bible itself. So we're not going to start with the Bible. We're going to start outside of the Bible, and we're going to start talking about bibliographical. 
So it ex bibliographical testing, when we want to understand the Bible, examines the textual transmission by which documents reach us. Reach us. So what we want to find out is, in a real simple way, is how did this thing land in my lap? You ever ask that question? Well, I know how it landed in my lap. I went down to Mardell and I bought it, right? Did this book fall from heaven and disappear with nice bound leather like we have? Where did it come from? How did it get to us? And it's an incredible story that a lot of Christians don't even know. So let's talk about manuscripts. And we want to start talking about the number of copies. How many manuscripts do you think there are? Let's just set aside the whole Bible. Let's just talk about the New Testament. Because we all know there are 39 books in the New Testament, right? Just making sure you're still awake. 27. So it's, there's 39 in the Old. So let's talk about the New Testament, 27 books. How many copies of manuscripts do you think there are? Somebody want to guess? All right, good. Nobody wants to guess. So we'll just go on. All right. Well, let's talk secondly. We're going to go over these in a minute, but let's talk secondly about the time interval between the original and the existing copies. Before we even get to that, so when we talk about time interval, if you go back to the first, because we don't have the manuscripts. Do we understand that? Nobody has the original. So all we have are copies. So if you want to find a reliable copy, what do you want to look for? Primarily, first and foremost. What's that? Yeah, how close it would be copied. Have you ever, ever played the game you, you whisper in somebody's ear, and then you whisper and whisper, 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 and then at the end of the, the person has to say what was said. Now, the first person that hears it is going to be a lot more, and if you had at the end to say which person had a better representation of what was said, you're going to go to the person that heard it before, you know, the, the, the last two or three. So the earlier, uh, the smaller the time, the earlier the, the manuscript, the more reliable that manuscript's going to be. Does that make sense? Because over time, what happens? Things get corrupted. We, you know, uh, I cannot tell you. When I was at First Baptist, I, oh, I need to hurry, but this is a good illustration. I was at First Baptist Daytona Beach. We had a gravel parking lot next to the church. And people would park in there, and our senior adults would park in there. And they would go through that parking lot, and their heels would get caught in the gravel, and, and it would get, it'd get muddy, and it was just nasty. And, uh, and I said, why don't we pave that? My goodness, it's right adjacent. Everybody parks there. They park there because, you know why people park there? Because it was closest to the door. This is human nature, isn't it? Even if it was a gravel parking lot, and they had to walk 10 more steps, you know, if they parked in the, in the parking lot. Anyway, and so I said, why didn't we pave it? We can't pave it. Why can't we pave that? Oh, because the city won't let us pave that. Well, who told you the city won't let us pave that? Oh, uh, Joe, Joe Schmelfungus told us that. Well, who told him? Billy Bob Wingnut said that. Oh, yeah, Joe Whistlebridges told him, you know. And next thing you know, you got this oral tradition, and we're like, well, who said what? And they're going, oh, this was a meeting they had 20 years ago. And finally, our executive pastor called the city of Daytona and said, we got a parking lot next to the church. We want to pave it. Can it be paved? Absolutely it can be paved. So oral tradition can get dangerous over time. It just it gets corrupted, you know. We know that to be true. So you want to go back to the earliest time frame when the manuscript was written, and you want to have as little time between the original and the, and the existing copy. And then you want to ask the question, the degree of accuracy. So what good does an early copy have to do if a bunch of unreliable copiers copied it? Right? So you want to have to, you want to try to answer those questions. So let's look at this for a minute. This is just a, a, a little bit of a chart up here. If you just look at the numbers of copies of some uh, very well-known, famous books, um, you can see uh, uh, the, the time frame. The X, by the way, is the time frame between when that book was written and when the copy of that book appeared. Okay. So the time frame, the, 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 the time frame. And if you just look at that, even books that people, for example, Homer and his Iliad, the earliest copy is dated over 400 years after the Iliad was written, okay? And so uh, if you just look at that, and by the way, if you look at the numbers of copies 
of those various uh, works in history. And then you look down at the New Testament and you begin to look at the various manuscripts, you find that that time frame between when those books were believed to be written and when we have a copy of those books, you can see how much uh, less they are than other books that people rarely dispute the authorship of those books or the validity of those. And then when you look at the New Testament, for example, Pliny the Elder, Natural History, there's seven copies. When you look at the New Testament, there are 5,600, let me go back, 5,686 copies of the New Testament. So this is, I don't expect you to memorize this chart, but I just want you to see when you look at the number of copies and the time frame from when the original would have been to the first copies were discovered, you see there's a whole lot more evidence concerning the New Testament. A, a nod of the head, an amen, a yawn, anything like that would be good. So, yeah, so let's, uh, let's look, for example, at, uh, at uh, uh, kind of the, 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 a, a question. And here's the question. Is it better for X, this is the time frame between the two to be longer or shorter? You guys have already answered that, right? Shorter. So when you go back here and you look at the autograph, um, we say no longer extant, it's no longer existing, nobody has them. And we look at the earliest manuscript copy, and then we have the modern version here. You would want the earliest manuscript copy because the earliest manuscript copy and all those copies are going to be how we get our modern version. You want that to be a short time. So when you look at this, uh, the answer is shorter. When you look at the autograph, let's say, for example, the Gospel of John, you know, 60 AD, and you look at the EMC, that's not E equals MC squared. That's the earliest manuscript copy, uh, which is, we'll see in a moment, the manuscript. It's around 135 AD. It could be as early as 125 AD, um, which is about 75 years or less. Uh, what does that tell you? It tells you that the earliest manuscript, and it's not the whole manuscript, it's a, it's a portion of the Gospel of John. We'll talk about that in a moment. But what it does tell you is that that first copy that we have is very close historically to the actual writing of the Gospel itself. Now, how many of y'all hold a letter in your house from somebody that is in your family and was written 75 years ago? I mean, some of you may. You know, you have, you have a collection. Is anybody really going to doubt something that was written 75 years ago? Mm, we, we would consider that, even in modern skeptical days, to be pretty reliable. Not alone, because we're going to want some more evidence, right? Because if you have a document you want to try to sell to a, an archive director or, or a collector, they're going to want to verify the authenticity of it. But if they can verify the authenticity and the dating of it, then, you know, the reliability of that document becomes less in question. So let's go back, you know, to the time test. When you look at the time test, here you go. You have when these were written, you have the earliest copy, and over here, X. You have uh, the years between the, the writing, and you have the years, uh, uh, the year when it was written, the copy, and then how many years are in between. Uh, you know, Caesar, 1,000 years, Plato, 1,300, uh, Tacitus, 1,000 years. When you come down to the New Testament, we have 114 fragments, 200 books, 250, most of the New Testament, 300, uh, 200, when I, when I, excuse me, when I say this, when I say 114, this is the year, these, the year 200, the year 250, the year 325, okay? So you have second century, you have third century, third century, and fourth century, and you have a time period of 25 to 50 years, 100 years, 150, and 225 years. Far closer uh, time frame between the original and the copies than any other document. Okay. The reason I'm telling you that is not that you're going to sit down at the coffee table with a non-believer and pull this chart out, but I'm saying that for you as a Christian so that you can understand that the Bible that you have in your hand is a very reliable book. Even if somebody were to say to you, they, if they were to say to you, okay, great, I will believe the Bible is true, but nobody has the originals, you could say you're right. Nobody has the originals. But do you understand that the original that we have, I mean, the, 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 the Bible that we have today was the result of manuscripts, many of which, 
and the most reliable were written before the 4th century A.D. Some even as few as maybe 70 to 75 years after the event happened. That is far greater reliability than any other document historically that most people, maybe even yourself, would accept. Again, you're not going to reason them into heaven, but you're going to get them to go, it's not really a good argument to say you don't have the originals. Okay, But a lot of us would look at that and we would say, oh, you're right. Well, I guess I can't talk to you about Jesus because you just, you know, you just stumped me. So again, that's the question or the key down at the bottom right. 25 to 50 years, 100 years, 150 years, and 225 years. Now, let me give you a couple examples, and we'll do this in three minutes. It's awesome. The time interval. The New Testament has earlier manuscripts closer to the time of the original composition. For example, there's a fragment called the John Ryland fragment, uh, dated to 117 to 138. Um, uh, These are named after the people, by the way, who bought them. Uh, the, the, the Bodmer papyrus, 150 to 200, um, which has whole books. The Chester Beatty papyri, 250 AD, most of the New Testament. Codex Vaticanus, uh, 325 to 350 AD, nearly all the Bible. And there's also another uh, manuscript called uh, uh, Codex Sinaiticus. It was found in the Sinai in, in Egypt. But if you look at, for example, the John Ryland's fragment, uh, it has John 18, 31 through 33. It's a real small manuscript. See how small that is? That's why they call it a fragment. Uh, that's a copy of it. Uh, it's within one generation from the original in the Gospel of John. One generation of people. So it, 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 you, you very well could have uh, people who, when the fragment was recorded, there's a lot of debate about where, when they, uh, uh, who wrote them and when, but the reliability based on carbon dating puts them back to the, to the date uh, of the New Testament or to the date of, uh, uh, that, that we believe, AD 117 to 138. So again, somebody want to read that? It's in Greek. You can read that. Um, but it's one generation. So it's very possible the person that wrote that had firsthand experience. Maybe very old, but they had firsthand experience. If they didn't have firsthand experience or, or knew John, or knew of John, they knew somebody who did. It's very, very reliable. Um, it was carbon dated, uh, what some say is 110 to 150 AD. It contains a few verses from the Gospel of John uh, and a second piece uh, from John 18, 37 and 38. It was found in Egypt, which is some distance from the traditional composition in Asia Minor. We can confirm that the Gospel of John was written before the end of the first century. Obviously, it would have taken that much time to be able for that document to be able to make its way there. Uh, if you look, for example, there's another picture of it. Um, it's in Manchester, England, if you want to go see it. Um, then we have the Bodmer Papyrus. It contains whole books, about 150 to 200 A.D., and that's John 1, 1 through 14. Uh, they're, they're labeled P66 for papyrus, but it has 104 leaves of John 1, John 6. You can read that. And fragments of 40 other pages from the, from the Gospel of John. Um, it's the earliest known copy of Jude, 1 Peter, and 2 Peter. When's it dated? It's dated to the uh, late, mid to late 2nd century and early 3rd century uh, A.D. Um, it contains Luke, um, again, the earliest copy of Luke um, in that papyrus. Um, there's a, another picture of it. Um, the Chester Beatty papyri, it contains most of the New Testament. The, one of the papyri contains all four Gospels and Acts, and it's located in the Beatty Museum near Dublin. Um, and that's just a picture of that. Pretty, pretty well preserved, isn't it, wouldn't you say, uh, for how old it is, 3rd century A.D.? Um, this is a second century part of the book of Hebrews. Um, and then there's Codex Sinaiticus, which was uh, dated back to 340 A.D., 4th century, found in the Sinai um, in a monastery. Um, and it contains half of the Old Testament books and all of the other New Testament except a few verses. Um, and that's, this is Vaticanus. It contains the entire Bible. It's dated to 
anyway, 325 to 350. It includes most of the Septuagint version of the Old Testament and most of the New Testament in Greek. There's some passages that are missing. Now, when you take all of that, Josh McDowell in his book, The, the New Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and you kind of put all that stuff together, again, you can see there's 5,686 copies of the New Testament. Some date back to 130, others to 2, 250, and 325. And those are the fragments that I showed you, okay? Those are just the ones I showed you. And they are considered the most reliable, okay? Now, what does all this mean? So when you take all of the manuscripts and beyond just the 5,600 whatever, when you find all of the evidence that goes beyond that, you have 25,000 New Testament manuscripts, okay? So we're talking about a lot of stuff, okay? They are so close that we are virtually certain that 97% to 98% of, of the, that uh, we have 70, 97 to 98% of the New Testament. Almost half are one and two word variants for spelling, adding the word the, none of them affect doctrine. You, you understand what we're saying? So let me, let me make it Mark version. No, let me make it clear. I won't make it Mark version. If you take, let's just set aside all the others. Let's just take those 5,600, the most reliable. What are the most reliable? The earliest, okay? And historically reliable. So we take those earliest. We spread those all out on the table. You can get them all in the same room. You're not going to. It's a lot of money and a lot of prestige, and you're not going to get near them. You can go, by the way, to the British Museum and see uh, uh, Sinaiticus and, and Vaticanus, one of them. Anyway, but anyway, you can go see it. Um, Sinaiticus, Vaticanus is in the Vatican. Uh, you take and you lay them all out on the table, Okay? and you start piecing them together, and you start taking the ones written earlier to the ones that are a little bit later, and you put them all together, they agree 97 to 98%. 97 to 98%. And where they don't disagree, where they don't agree, and they disagree, it's, it's words like the, about half of the disagreements are words like the, or spelling. And some of them are where somebody may have added something um, you know, just for clarity, but none of what they have found has anything to do with doctrine. So that's what we call textual criticism. If you have in your Bible little notes and you look down, have you ever looked at the bottom and you see these little notes, sometimes if you have a, a certain version of the Bible and it'll have certain manuscripts, have blah, blah, blah. Have you ever paid attention to any of that? Most people don't, but you look at it and you go, what does that mean? It, it's textual critics. It's basically saying this is where there was a little discrepancy in the manuscript, but it will say in your Bible many times the most reliable manuscripts have, and that's what they default to. What do they default to? The most reliable date and all that. So what that tells you is, is that what we hold in our hands in the New Testament, and we can do the same for the old, but, but the new's easier for us to talk about with regard to that. You have a reliable copy, 97 to 98% reliable. So the question really isn't, is my Bible reliable? The question is, am I going to believe that it's reliable? Do I believe what it says now? So you can, you can help somebody understand it. Let me give you a, uh, I'm not going to read Metzger. This is, this is a, if you have a, his, uh, anyway, I won't read it to you, but we'll go on. Uh, he, he goes through the, the various uh, percentages. Um, but here's what, uh, here's what some, some scholars have said. Westcott and Hort in their book, The New Testament and Original Greek, say if comparative triviality such as changes of order, the insertion or omission of the article with proper names and the like are set aside, the words, in our opinion, still subject to doubt, can hardly amount to more than a thousandth part of the New Testament. These are textual critics. They've looked at all the manuscripts. Um, so you look at our Bible, and here, here, here's a good picture of this, okay? And I, I promise I'm going to end in two minutes. Look at the little... Uh, what is that called? The number sign. There you go. Copy one. God is, Jay's missing. The, one, the just and justifier, Romans 3.26. Now, this isn't an actual. This is an example. Copy two. God is the J and the U is missing. Copy three. God is the J-U and the S is missing. Copy four. God is the J-U-S and the T is missing. What would you conclude if you were doing textual critic? You would say, oh, it must be the word just. Right. Well, this is exactly what the textual critics do. They look at all the manuscripts, and they're able to piece together 
exactly what the original would have said. Not because they decided, but based on evidence that that's what it would have said. The New Testament documents, by the way, have far fewer variations than that. that but any logical person is going to make that conclusion. You're not going to say, oh, it doesn't mean just, okay? So let me give it to you this way. If you receive this message, you would have no doubt. For those of you listening online, why O is missing, you have won $10 million. Number two, Y O U is missing, have won $10 million. Y O U, and then you have the H that's missing, have won $10 million. What conclusion are you going to make? You're going to get the message. 100% of the message comes through. Even though there are different kinds of errors, we can still be sure of the overall message. The Bible has many less than this. Bruce Metzger, New Testament scholar, says the works of several ancient authors are preserved to us by the thinnest possible thread of transmission. In contrast, the textual critic of the New Testament is embarrassed by the wealth of his material. In other words, they're not having to try to find it. They've got plenty of it. John Warwick Montgomery, to be skeptical of the resultant text of the New Testament books is to allow all of the classical antiquity to slip into obscurity for no document of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically as the New Testament. So that, when we come back in two weeks, John's going to talk about uh, evolution. We're going to come back and finish this because I want you to see the external evidence and then the internal evidence, and we'll talk about it next week. Okay? Let me pray. Father, thank you for our time tonight. Just help us, Lord, to take what we're learning and piece it together and understand it the best we can. But, Lord, help us to be sharp and able to teach and to share the gospel. Lord, knowing.